if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. And as we continue to walk through the life of David, and uh, I'm going to do something. You're not going to believe me when I say we're going to do this. But I promise you that we will be out by time for next week's service. We spent three weeks in a single chapter, chapter one. We're going to spend one week in three chapters this week. Now, I know you're thinking, well, there goes my lunch plans. Well, there goes your dinner plans, too. But um, I do think we can do it. I hope we can do it. If not, feel free to leave and get you a snack. We've got some in the back. Uh, that, that does remind me of a story. It's not in my notes. You're going to get out late anyways. Um, there was a guy at the church I served at before. He would always ask, what's your sermon about? Which is really helpful because you have to boil it down in a single sentence. Farmers ain't got that much time, right? And the other thing he would do, he asked, how long is it going to be? I said, two things he want to know. What are we going to talk about today and when can I get home? And uh, he would always make jokes about how he has to eat a late breakfast on Sunday mornings because I'm long-winded, that sort of stuff. So one Sunday, I knew we were going to be long. So I grabbed him some, some little crackers, a little pack of six crackers. He asked those questions. I said, oh, by the way, you're going to need these after 12 o'clock, right? <laughs> we just went on. So if you need crackers, we've got some little Debbies in, in, in the back, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Our favorite team is 1130, so there you go. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 2. What we want to do, we want to read the first few verses. We won't read the three chapters because we're going to look at the entire story, and we'll be referring. So you've got to keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking at a lot of coverage here, but if you will, stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. Uh, 2 Samuel 2 is found on page 274 of your pew Bibles, and, and of course, we'll be looking at quite a bit after that. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, a Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. The men of Judah came and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When, David, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, ask, as always, you open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we would take your word and look at the scene of violence and warfare, that we may see the glory of God, the providence of Christ, what it means to be people of honor. Lord, this is your work. This is your word. Be faithful to your people. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I get older, one of the things I realized that I took for granted over the years, and I'm willing to bet that most Americans take this for granted, and that is every four to eight years, we have a peaceful transition of power in the White House. You understand how odd and rare that is in human history? The thing about what happens is that there for a time, we have, we could say, uncertainty about who is going to be our next chief executive? 
But from George Washington now to President Joe Biden, that is not a matter of debate. Hasn't been uh, in our history. That wasn't always the case in America. George Washington was elected unanimously by the electors to be president for two terms. And shock of all shocks, he decided not to seek re-election for a third term, thus setting a president to serve no more than two terms as the nation's president. Only one president surpassed that, and that, of course, was FDR in the 20th century. But then the person who ran behind him was John Adams. But many thought maybe something could go awry here, you know. But then again, Adams was part of Washington's party, the Federalist Party. And so there wasn't too much panic, but panic did set in when the third president of the United States was elected by the electors and he was of a different party. So the fear was that this peaceful transition of power may not actually happen. Remember, all these Americans, were most of the Americans were British. And imagine if the king of England stepped down from the throne. In the 18th and 19th century, you would likely have war. But every four to eight years, ever since George Washington set the president, we have had a peaceful transition of power. Well, guess what it is we have here starting in, in, in 2 Samuel 2? Transition of power, but it ain't peaceful. The king and his heirs are dead. Who will occupy the throne of Israel? Notice, first of all, in verses 1 to 7, the passage we read together is the ascension of David. Now, again, following a period of mourning and death, we spent significant time on that in chapter 1. Uh, over the death of Saul and his sons, particularly Jonathan, you, you remember in his lamentation, that psalm, David sets out to fulfill God's calling for his life. And to do that, he seeks the will of God. It's made very clear in, there in verse 1. He inquired of the Lord, that is in contrast to the way Saul, the latter end of his life, would do. And, in, and the Lord leads him to settle in the city of Hebron. Now, Hebron, in the tribe of Judah, was a very strategic city for a number of reasons. One, it was associated with Abraham. Abraham settles in Hebron. We seen that in our study of Genesis. We'll see more of it in our ongoing study of Genesis in the three years it'll take us to cover about five chapters. It is also the city given to Caleb by Joshua. You can see that in Joshua chapter 14. It was known as a priestly city again in Joshua 21, and it was a strategic city politically. It was far enough away from the Philistines, the Malachites, and the northern tribes, as we'll see they're about to anoint their, their own king. It was near the town of Bethlehem, so, so he, he's He's got the home advantage there. It was also near the home of his two wives. And so it, it allowed him to unite the southern clan of Judah uh, and thus be crowned. And you see there in those opening four verses, David is crowned king. Now, it may be surprising to find David to be crowned king of a single tribe. What good is that, right? After all, we've been anticipating David to be crowned king of Israel. Here we see him being crowned of a tribe of Israel. But let us just pause and consider the historical moment here. Remember that it's David's great-grandmother and great-grandfather, Boaz and Ruth, who, who were part of the generation of the judges. And you remember that Saul was the first king of Israel, which means prior to Saul, people would identify by their tribe more than their nation. A way to illustrate this, you can actually look at American history here. When you look at the Continental Congress, particularly during the war, they had virtually no power because the states would not surrender sovereignty. In fact, it was really until the Civil War that the average American saw their loyalty more to their state, in our case to Kentucky, than it would be to the nation. 
And so, yes, they would say, I'm an American, but they'd also say, I'm a Virginian. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a Kentuckian, right? And that really changed after the Civil War for, I think, what are obvious reasons. So you have it here. What you have is a loose coalition of tribes that make up the nation of Israel. So it shouldn't be surprising that after the death of Saul, there's this power vacuum and everyone's going to jockey for their position in power that Judah, the tribe of, of David, will crown him king and follow him to the throne. And, and that is exactly what it is that we have going on here. Well, that crowning, uh, that ascension of David leads to really what is the rest of what we're looking at this morning, to division. We have ascension on the one hand. We have division on the other. And this is in chapter 2, verse 8, going all the way into chapter 4, verse 12, the very last verse of chapter 4. Now, I think this should not be news to you or I. The pursuit of power stirs conflicts, right? That, that, that is very, very, at, at small levels and at very large levels. The death of Saul and his son creates a vacuum and everyone wants his job. So what follows is a historic game of throne, right? They want one throne here. So in verses 8 through 11, the conflict starts with the crowning of another king. So you have David in the south there in Judah. In the northern tribes, really about 11 tribes are recognizing him as king. And you, what you have here is a guy by the name, this will be on your test at the end, Ishbosheth, right? That, now, Ishbosheth is crowned by a guy named Abner. We'll look at them. Um, and he is the lone surviving son of Saul. Okay, so in, in, in the line of politics, what we think of it is if the firstborn son dies, the secondborn son, you go all the way down, right? This is why Henry VIII became king over England, even though he's not the, he wasn't the firstborn son of Henry VII. Arthur was, but Arthur dies shortly after being married to Catherine of, 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 of Spain. And so when he dies, Henry VIII becomes king, right? You would think the same thing here. And so what you have then are two characters in this crowning. The first is Abner. Abner was Saul's commander. We've met him before in the story of David thus far. The other is Ishbosheth, who is crowned king, but he's crowned and made king by Abner. And what is very evident is that Abner doesn't have some of the leadership qualities that his father and brothers, like Jonathan, had. Now, Ishbosheth is a great name to say, um, but it has a meaning. It means man of shame. I don't know what you're thinking to yourself, self. Who would name their child that? And I would say, have you not kept up with the names celebrities have been given their kids? I mean, come on, right? Your, your, your expectation of parents sometimes is way too high. But I actually say that's probably not his original name. His original name, for what we could tell, was Ish Baal, which means man of Baal. Ish is the Hebrew word for, for man. Now, what you find in ancient Israel is that what they would do, faithful Israel would take the name Baal, Baal, and they would add the word shame to it to remind the Israelites of their shame in allowing Baal worship into, into their kingdom. So Ishbaal gets his name changed to Ishbosheth, the man of, of shame. And it shows just how far Saul's faith and faithfulness had fallen as king. Well, what the crowning of Ishbosheth means is that Israel now has two kings. That's not good. That is going to stir a problem. Now, this isn't the first time or the last time this has ever happened in history. 
One of my favorite examples of having multiple chief executives is actually in the Roman Catholic Church. 14th century, you have what is called the Great Schism. You have two popes. Each pope excommunicates the other pope. They solve that because the question is, who's the, right, who's the heir of Peter? Who's, who's in the seat of Peter? So they solve that by getting a third pope, right? I mean, that'll fix that anytime, right? Right? Now, remember, in the American Civil War, we had two presidents, both born in Kentucky, uh, which, is, which is interesting in of itself. So this isn't unique here. So, so this crowning of Ishbosheth means war. And you get that war starting in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. And the war begins in, 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 in what you start as is, is they're, they're, they understand we're all countrymen here. We're all on the same side. We just got to solve this little political matter. I am so glad politics doesn't get out of hand today, aren't you? I tell you, I am just so glad these days are, are over with. So what you have then is, is you get these two characters. Abner is going to be involved. Remember, he's the commander of the army. And then David has a representative by the name of Joab. You remember those two names? Abner in the north under Ishbosheth, Joab in the south, that is Judah, with David. And what they do is they say, look, I'll get 12 guys. You get 12 guys. 12, of course, associated with the tribes of Israel. They are fighting over to unite Israel. So you get 12, I get 12, and they fight. Whoever wins, wins the war. Well, that. Not a terrible idea. It's not a good idea, but, but, but not a terrible idea. So, so, so they gather at the Pool of Gideon. You, you see it there in, in your text. By the way, you can still visit the Pool of Gideon. Uh, you can go to Gideon. There's all kinds of sites in this pool. We're pretty certain this is where, where they met uh, even after all these years. And what happens in verse 17 is a uh, – verse 16 and 17 is, is a stalemate. So you go down to verse 16. You see it there. Um, each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim. That will be on your test at the end. That just means the field of the sword edge, meaning they all killed each other. That leads to all-out war, verse 17. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So you know how this works, right? You don't just bring 12 guys, right? You don't do that. You bring the entire army. And out of that army comes 12 guys because you're just waiting. Everyone else is waiting. Look, if this don't go right, we're going in, right? This is tag team wrestling here with real swords, right? And, and, and so, so, so that, that little skirmish where everyone dies leads to this, this, the launch of civil war. And if you go down to chapter 3, verse 1, you get a summary of what the civil war looks like. There was a long war between the house of Saul, that's under Ishbosheth, right, and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That's the summary of the Civil War. But one of the things you'll notice about these chapters is the war is the broad narrative, like plot A. But then there's a subplot, plot B, that happens that really gets a lot of ink here. And that is personal conflicts in the middle of the war. You really think about it. If you ever read a good book about a war, World War II or the Civil War or the French and Indian War or, or whatever it might be, 
And what you'll find is the broad narrative of the war, right? These people met, they fought, this is what happened. You also get the interpersonal conflicts within that. So Lincoln, for example, in the Civil War, he couldn't find the right general. He was having a lot of conflict with his generals. So finally, he, he got USS Grant and, and some others, right? And on the Confederate side, you, you get your own. In World War II, you get the same thing, right? These interpersonal uh, uh, conflicts and battles and jockeying for a position and who's going to get the promotion and all that sort of stuff. Well, you get that here. And this takes a lot of ink. So, so let me highlight three of these stories. Again, we can only highlight them. We can't spend forever on them. The first is conflict between Abner, who's under Ishbosheth in the north, and Joab, who's, who's a servant of David. What happens after that battle, chapter 2, verse 17, right? So, so everyone dies, the, the 24 guys fight and die, and then that leads to civil war. Well, part of that battle is that as Abner flees, Joab's younger brother chases down Abner, and he thinks, if I can kill Abner, the war's over with. And Abner turns around, he sees Joab's little brother. He says, look, don't do this. Go on home, we'll fight another day. But he won't do it. So they fight. And in self-defense, Abner kills Joab's little brother. And you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 22 to 23. I've summarized it. Uh, you could read it for, on your own time. Now, what do you think is going to happen? Joab is not going to receive the news of the death of his brother by hands of Abner. He's going to say, well, he was defending himself. Well, this is war. My little brother should have known the risk before he went after him. Is that what Joab is going to do? Is there a such thing as nuance in errors of violence, war, and conflict? No. Try getting on Facebook and reading comments to see if there's much nuance going on there. Joab gets quite upset. Well, before that carries out, Abner returns uh, to returns to to Ishbosheth's home there, his 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 castle, and now they've got conflict. So Abner just killed Joab's little brother. So that's going to stir conflicts. We'll see. But then he gets back to the palace and he thinks it's a good idea to sleep with one of Saul's concubines. Now, how do you think the son of Saul is going to respond to that? Verily I say unto thee, not very well. So they have conflicts. In fact, you see it there in chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. I ain't going to get you out of trouble. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's just... Mm. And Abner is like one of the good guys in the story. He's on the wrong side, but he's like one of the good guys. And this is still him. Remember that whenever we talk about David later on in, in the story of, of 2 Samuel. So what does Abner do? He thinks it's a good idea to go join David's side. His king has, is, it hates him and wants him out. So he says, I know what I'll do. God has, he realizes, God has anointed David king, not you. I made a mistake there. I'm going to go join the winning side. I'm going to go join David's side because God has called him, and I want to be on God's side. So this leads to that third conflict, right? Now remember what's happened. Abner, going to be the main character here, he kills his enemy's little brother, um, offends his king and sovereign, joins the other team, 
which is led by the older brother, the guy he just killed. How do you think this is going to go down when he arrives? This story writes itself, doesn't it? Well, David takes him in. He joins David's team, and, and David takes him in. The problem comes is that David forgets to tell Joab that the guy who killed his younger brother is on our team now. So David goes off to fight a battle, and there's Abner. And Joab returns victoriously from a battle, and he sees Abner. Well, guess what Joab does? He kills him. Go to chapter 3, verse 27. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. There he struck him in the stomach. Same thing that Abner had done, done to Joab's brother. So that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. You saw that one coming, didn't you? Right, I mean, I've read enough fantasy literature and history to know this, 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 the writing was, was, was on the wall. This is what is going to happen. So, so this is what you get in, 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 the, the, these, in these three chapters. You get a war between two states, if we can call them that, Judah in the south. Uh, and eventually, Benjamin comes with Abner, so there's really the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And then the ten tribes in the north. Now, that division will return after the death of Solomon. Right? But for now, you have these, these, these two sides of Israel. David's in the south with, with two tribes. Ishbosheth is, is in the north. Within that story arc is personal conflict. Okay? And here's how the story ends in chapter 4. The king of Israel, Ishbosheth, is murdered while taking a nap around noontime. I have no doubt he's, he had lunch at Chick-fil-A, and then he returns home. His belly is full. So if you'll look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 8, you'll see this. Now, the sons of Ramond, the Behirathite, Rechab and Baana, those names again would be on your test at the end, set out about the heat of the day. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his new name rest. They came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Note the deception there. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the, king, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. And they all lived happily ever after. If only. It's not the way history works, is it? Well, that's the story. What are we going to do about it? What do we do about this? Can I offer just a few points of application for the remaining of our time? The first thing that just sticks out to me as I read this, these chapters is, and then I turn on the news, frankly, is mankind is very violent. Mankind is violence. For these three chapters, we read multiple examples of murder, war, violence. Men are stabbed in the stomach. Women are abused. And the king of the north is beheaded while he sleeps. What we see here, picking up from the time of Judges, is that this is a society ruled by violence. And a society that is ruled by hatred Violence and a pursuit of power cannot rid itself of this. 
You never get to a point where we say, okay, everyone that needs to be gone is gone. Everyone that needs justice has received justice. And we've got the perfect people in power. That never happens. Have you noticed that in history? I've read a lot of it. It never happens. This is what Jesus means when he tells Peter, who whacks off the dude's ear, probably aiming more for the head. And Jesus says, what does he say there in, in, in Matthew 26? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. A few years ago, I was reading a really good book about the Hatfield McCoys. I think I've told you all this before. And my conclusion of that story about the Hatfield McCoys was simply this. Those who live by the Winchester die by the Winchester. Whether it's a sword or a gun, it is still the same. And in honor cultures like this one in the ancient Near East, revenge is the primary means of honoring the deceased. Which means if someone uh, you know, killed your, 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 your little brother in this case, you got to kill them. But then guess what? That family has just lost someone to murder. So now they've got to kill you. But now your family lost someone. You've got to go kill them. And then they got to kill them. And then they got to kill them. And generations will pass and no one remembers why we're killing each other. All we need to know is that I, as a member of this family, is supposed to hate them, supposed to reject them, supposed to despise them. They are my enemy. And so we become tribal. We become identified by this group and that family, the way they vote, the way they act, the way they looked, and the way they were educated or where they live. And so what you get is a society driven by violence. Oh, by the way, before you judge such warrior cultures, Ask yourself why it is that you haven't spoken to your cousin in 10 years. It's the same thing going on. Why is it that we want to, and we so easily, write nasty things online behind an anonymous, anonymous account, or why we stay in our echo chamber hating the other side? Why do we do these things? It's for the same reason that we see the violence here. Do not be surprised that our society has become more violence. Hatred is the fuel of violence. It isn't a left versus right thing. It's become an American thing because it's a human thing. And we see that here. Gospel love is the only thing in history that has put an end to generations of violence within a society or among societies. It is no accident that we've become more violent as a society, the less Christian we become. Go back to chapter 2, verse 26. I, I think it'd be good because we see this in the text. I'm not just drawing this out. It's right there in the text. So, so this is where Joab and Abner, right? This is before he, he, anyone has killed anyone, right? Well, other than, than the 12 and whatnot. Abner called the Joab. Now remember, Joab will eventually kill Abner because Abner killed Joab's little brother. But here they're at least talking. On two opposite sides, at least they're talking. And Abner, who's like the good guy of the story, and that's not saying much, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? How long? Do you see how this is going to end? Can anyone turn on the news and say, ah, give it enough time. One more election will fix this. A few more uh, strokes of the pen will fix this. Get enough of our people in there. That'll fix this. No, no, this is a human problem we have here. You see, although, well, this is the way of ancient man. Many of you all know, you're not going to get out early, I'm sorry. Many of you all know that my favorite story in the world um, is the uh, old English poem Beowulf. I highly recommend it to you. 
Beowulf opens up with a funeral. It ends with a funeral. Spoiler alert, Beowulf dies. You've had like a thousand years to read it, okay? So I think it's okay to spoil the ending. Beowulf dies fighting a dragon. That's the cool part. But as he dies, he's holding the dragon's gold, because that's what dragons do. And the writer is trying to tell us it's not about dragons and monsters. It's about the monsters within the human soul. Because they're Vikings. You know how Vikings work? They get in a boat. They, get out, they go out to sea. They find a place. They raid it. They kill. They rape. They destroy. And what do they steal? Gold. They take it back. And the king disperses the gold. Everyone's got gold. We're all rich and happy, right? They didn't have an unstrained of inflation back then. But guess what's going to happen? Someone's going to hear, hey, the geats got gold. Let's go raid them. So they get on their boats. They set out the sea. They go to the geats. And they raid them. And they steal all their gold. They bring it back. The king disperses it. And guess what? The Danes here, they got gold. Let's go get that gold. This is dragon sickness, as Tolkien would describe it. And so the story ends with the death of Beowulf, who had kept them safe for about 50 years. And Wiclaf is his chief of staff, if you will. He's the guy that ends up really killing the dragon. He laments the death of Beowulf, not because he's loyal to his king, but he fears the onslaught of the Swedes. You see, we're the ones with all the gold. And this day, you won't find the Geats, but you will find the Swedes. This is dragon sickness. This is the way of Vikings. This is the way of men. You as a believer in Christ can choose a better way. Inside each of us is a temptation towards violence, malice, bitterness, anger, wrath, and online fighting. We can choose a better way. Choose to crucify such bitterness and envy. There is enough of it in the world. We don't need to add to it. Let us be different people. And this leads to the second point I see in, the, in, in these three chapters. That is that envy is a poison. Imagine, if you will, what would happen if, if, if my family and I were going to have a movie night. We, we try to do these at least once a week, have a movie night, or right now it's a flash night. But, but, but we're, we're watching our movie, watching our show, whatever it is. And I get up, and I say, I want some ice cream. Go fix me a bowl of ice cream. And, and I fix one of my kids a bowl of ice cream. I fix no one else ice cream. What's going to happen? Where's my ice cream? Why don't you give me ice cream? Why did they get ice cream and I didn't get ice cream? That's not fair. You all got ice cream and we didn't get ice cream. We demand justice in this household. It's okay. You're right. I only got one child ice cream. I should have got everyone ice cream. Of course, it's my wife, the one leading the charge. And so, so I'll say, okay, I'll go in and I'll fix ice cream. I'm going to fix two more bowls of ice cream for my wife and, and, and the other missing child right, that I didn't fix it for. This time, these bowls of ice cream have four times the ice cream that those other bowls had. I say, here you go. And that child that I got the one bowl of ice cream for at the beginning, what are they going to do? Why don't I get that much ice cream? How come they got more ice cream than me? This isn't right. I demand justice. Go get me more ice cream. What does you have here? Everyone was happy without having ice cream. This one child was happy with the little ice cream they got, particularly because it made their sibling upset. But the second the tables were turned, that bitterness and envy really started to come out, isn't it? Do you see that in this story? 
Jesus warns us of this, right? It's my favorite parable of Jesus. It's my favorite because I didn't like it for a long time until I finally figured it out. Remember Jesus, he pays everyone equal, even though some work 12 hours, some work one hour, right? And it's not good economics, but it's a good theology that he has here because it's about grace and how, how the, 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 the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But in there, the, the guy says, look, when you work for me 12 hours, you agreed to this amount of money. What are you complaining about? I'll tell you the problem is, it's envy, envy. You see that in this passage here? Although the broad narrative is David versus Ishbosheth, the two kings, the subplot is Abner and Joab, and it's significant. Both are quality military leaders and faithful servants. Abner, who was more righteous, makes two mistakes in the eyes of Joab. One, he killed his little brother, and secondly, he had the audacity to join his team. Now imagine what happens with these men of ego when Joab or Abner joins Joab's team. How is Joab going to respond to this? This, this, this? this campaign ain't big enough for the two of us. So what you get then is conflict. Now, now this is irrational, isn't it? You want the best people on your team. But what does Joab and Abner think? This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Envy doesn't think rationally. Bitterness doesn't think rationally. Joab was an unrighteous man on the right side whose passions ultimately lead him to murder. That leads thirdly. The man of God must be a man of honor. David is caught up in a world of warfare, yet he responds with strength and honor. Go back to chapter 2. We read it earlier, so I want to read it again for the sake of time. I'm already past time. and that's Sorry, the method is already a cracker barrel. And you'll you notice there that David honors the men of Jabesh Gilead. And there's a whole history of Jabesh Gilead. Go back to Judges. We talked about it a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. He honors them for honoring Saul. Now, who is Saul? The guy that tried to kill David. Just murder him. Flat out murder. Remember, he threw the spear in his palace. Zing, right? You know, he's, right? And he's like, I should probably go for a walk right at that point, right? Once the spears start flying, you should, you should probably go home. And, and yet he honors these people. For this very act of showing honor to Saul. Because you remember, he executed a guy who claimed to, to rob Saul and leave him, leave him there. But no, these, these people, they, they honor him. Can you think of any, his, any example in history where the enemy combat, combatants honor his enemy after the death and honors those who honor them? I can't think of very many. Yet David does it. Go to chapter 3, verse 31 to 39. Chapter, 30, chapter 3, verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed. Right? So, so what does he do? He does, he does for Abner what he did for Saul. It was a man who was murdered. An honorable man who was murdered. So he responds to, to this guy who was fallen and broken and everything else, even writes a lament. You see it there in verse 33 to the, 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 the 34. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. He writes a lament, much like he did with Saul. Because he honors, he honors one worthy to be, to be honored. And so what, what is it that we have here? Throughout this entire narrative, David is different. He's not a perfect person. But he certainly is different than the world around him. The nation is at war with itself, and David seeks victory, yes. But he will not glory in violence. He will not celebrate the death of an image bearer. He won't do it. Because he is a man of honor. He is different. And so he sticks out from everyone else. 
If only there were people today who are supposed to stick out from the rest of the world. We could call them light and salt. Can you think of who that's supposed to be? Let me know at the end of the service if you can think of one. Fourthly and finally, God's providential promises may require hardship. Why doesn't God just give David a throne? You ever read these stories, you're like, hurry up already. David, be king. Everyone live happily ever after, right? Why does he have to go through all of this? He's anointed by Samuel in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. We're now in a different book, and he's still not king over Israel. Hurry up, right? How many more commercials do we have to sit through just to see what it is that we came to see? Well, we ask ourselves these questions all the time. I remember when we were going through the search process that that ultimately we landed here. That was a long and it was a difficult process on my family and I. A lot of hopes and dreams. And remember one time we were literally, literally measuring drapes in in the parsonage. I visited a local library one time thinking this is going to be our local library. And because that's what nerds do. You, You probably went to, I don't know, the sports track or something. I don't know, but I went to the library. I mean, I remember during that time thinking, why can't God just snap his fingers and this just be done with? God, whatever it is you're wanting to send us, just make, hurry up. Hurry up, right? You ever, you ever do that? My mother-in-law, whenever I, my wife and I were dating, uh, we'd watch a movie and, you know, we had dinner, watch a movie and all the dishes were in the sink. She goes, I wish I could just snap my fingers and the dishes be done. You struggle with this stuff? I, I certainly do. But you see, the providence of God requires patience. As God's story unfolds, we are the beneficiaries of patience. David, through this process, learns how to be a leader, how to fight, how to make decisions, and how to be a man of honor who leads. He wasn't ready for any of this while he was shepherding sheep. Now, shepherding sheep was part of God's providence, but he wasn't ready for all of this. And the truth is, God is writing our story even right now. You have no idea that if we are faithful to Christ, grow as disciples of of His, God is preparing you right now for whatever challenge, whatever opportunities, whatever needs may come your way in the days, weeks, months, years, and decades to come. If you find yourself faithful in the here and now, don't wait until those times come and say, I wish I was ready for this. You're being prepared for it right now if you will obey Him. Therefore, choose to live with integrity, Honor, courage, faith, and patience. God has everything under control. It seems like we have to remind ourselves that regularly because we keep the news on. Turn it off. God has everything under control. Our responsibility is not to freak out because someone tweeted something or someone shouted something or something bad happened. But... To trust in Christ's sovereign providence over the world and to grow as men and women of honor and integrity and holiness. We don't have to understand everything, but we can trust God throughout the process. But in the end, what we have is a shepherd who is about to be crowned king. He's king of Judah, but soon, in fact, chapter 5 starts when he's crowned king of Israel. All the obstacles have been removed And the question is, what sort of man will he become? Remember, that's the big question of these two books. What sort of man is David going to become? Is he going to fall the way of Saul? Or is he going to be better? That's the question the writer is asking the reader. So let me ask you, what matters more to you? Your goals or your integrity? David seeks to reach his goals, but he will not compromise his self-work or his holiness in the process. 
Which do you value more, success, wealth, or holiness? Ultimately, what it is that we're missing here is the gospel, isn't it? The reason there is so much war, the reason there is so much violence and bloodshed and anger and animosity and malice in our worlds for one simple reason, we forget Christ is king who's defeated it all. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, who, who, who brings peace to a broken world at war, when you take your eyes off of him, we engage in such unnecessary nonsense. This is why Christ demands you and I be peacemakers. Who else is going to be? If not us, who? Christ is risen from the dead. And we wait for the day when those spears be turned into plowshares. Why can't that start with us? For we are citizens of a far better kingdom. Let's pray.